How do you say goodnight? Perhaps... Don't leave! What is it? Or it could go this way. Well, so long. Just like that. After all, a girl likes to know you've had a good time. So let's try saying goodnight again. One more way. Well, it's getting late. Yes, it is. I'd ask you in for about to eat if it were so much. I'll call you next week. Will you? Thanks so much. I had loads of fun. So did I. Good night, Woody. How are we doing? Good to see you in church today. Good to have you here, and uh, we are actually, today is the halfway point of our series on For Better or For Worse, uh, kind of the midway. We've done three, we've got three left, and uh, so already so far we have talked about marriage, we have talked about singleness, we have talked about sex, we have kind of gone to all of these places, and uh, I'll be honest with you guys, that's, that's actually a really dumb thing for a pastor to say. I'll be honest, <laughs> as opposed to all those other times I've said things that I was not being honest. Uh, I'll be honest, this, this has surprised me at how much of an impact that this series has had on people, the feedback that we've gotten, just the, the stories that we've heard, it has been so good. Uh, I think last week, uh, that sermon produced the most feedback I have ever gotten from a sermon in my entire life. Uh, true story. And it wasn't just in like a, <laughs> you said sex, kind of way, but just like legitimate people, uh, you know, there was parents who were thrilled that their kids were there to hear some of that. Uh, husbands who were happy that their wives heard some of that, and vice versa, and just some people who have some stories from a past with damage, with pain, that really felt like God has been teaching them things and giving them some healing. And uh, I would, I mean, I could, I could stop now and talk for three or four hours about some of the stories of life change that is happening with people in our church right now. And uh, God is moving, and it is exciting, and uh, this has just been really good for us to kind of do this and so I want to continue with this today and talk about something really practical that is going to be in every relationship that you will ever have, whether it's a marriage relationship or just whatever the relationship might be. Uh, and so we're going to get really practical today, and uh, we're going to start with the fun exercise. I need a married couple who will volunteer to come up on stage. And if there are none that will do this, then I will handpick one. And so, hey, come on up. This is awesome. Give them a hand. Very good. Come up right on the stage so that the camera can see you guys. And I'll get you guys to introduce yourself. You are... Margaret. And Brian. Margaret and Brian. Uh, now, I am going to have to say you need to take your shoes off. I know, but the, don't worry. The camera can't see your, your feet and no one, on, no one can. It's all right. Uh, and then each of you need to hold a shoe, one belonging to you, one belonging to your spouse. And then you need to stand back to back so that you cannot see one another. How many of you guys have seen this game? This is the shoe game. Pretty popular wedding reception game. Now, the premise of this game... Okay. 
Oh, yeah, so you might have to do a little bit of juggling here. Um, the premise of the game is that I'm going to ask them a question about their relationship, about them, and they need to raise up the shoe of the person that they think is the correct answer to this question. Does that make sense? All right, so we're going to start a little easy. Uh, who is the better driver? Oh, okay, unanimous. We should clarify that the sneakers belong to the man, okay? Not the better driver. Uh, who does the most dishes? Okay. So, okay, I'll, I'll help you out here. I'll help you out and hand you the one when you need it. Uh, who is the most likely to be late for something? Oh, okay. Got a little bit of a fight happening. Uh, who wakes up grumpier? <laughs> she is still deciding. This one is... Uh, oh, okay. Are neither one of you morning people? No. Um, who starts the most arguments? This is going to be an argument. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, now, we're, now we're just going to get straight up, on purpose, divisive. Who is the smarter one in the relationship? See, look. Look at how diplomatic they're being right now. Uh, who wears the pants in this relationship? <laughs> uh, who most enjoyed last week's sermon? I'm just, you guys don't have to answer that one. <laughs> All right, give them a hand, ladies and gentlemen. Good job. Good job, you guys. Thank you. That's a pretty good picture sometimes of disagreeing with one another, maybe coming to different conclusions about certain things. Today, uh, we're going to talk about how to handle conflict, how to handle disagreements in a relationship. And I will use the word spouse throughout this entire sermon because we're talking marriage, but at the same time, all of this stuff will apply to the relationships you are in, whether you are married or not. And you all have relationships where this is going to be bound to happen, and, and you've all been in a relationship where you felt very strongly one way, and the other person felt very strongly the other way, let the games begin. You thought that things were very clear. I made this very clear. And the other person thought that was super vague and confusing. Where do you meet in the middle? How do you come to a conclusion? How do we navigate through disagreement and conflict? Uh, and, and this is so incredibly important because you will always find yourself in a relationship with miscommunication, with misunderstanding, with flat-out disagreements, and you're going to have to have communication and decide where you're going to land on all of these issues. And uh, it's really important to do because even the most minor disagreement can lead to some hurt feelings. And if not taken care of, hurt feelings can lead to all kind of, of a breakdown in communication, which can lead to all kinds of assumption making, which can lead to ultimately just a really broken, damaged relationship. And, and it's not ever just one major breach, not one major fight that will ever kind of destroy a relationship, will it? It's not ever just one. It, it's a whole bunch of them. 
It's when there's a breakdown in communication with little fight after little disagreement with little argument and it goes unchecked and it goes undealt with over time and eventually you get to a point where you look at your relationship and you're like, oh, this is a mess. And this is the point where a lot of couples will look at it and think, this is beyond repair. I'm, I'm not sure there's any coming back from this. And, the, and the, the kind of the breakup happens or the marriage dissolves or whatever it is. This went far too long. The damage was done. We never learned how to work things out. We never learned how to navigate through disagreements. And, and it's, it's a huge issue. Uh, did some research this week, found out that in Canada, uh, four in 10 marriages will end in divorce, 41%. Um, and I should clarify that Stats Canada actually stopped taking statistics on this because uh, kind of the institution of, of marriage has changed to such a degree that those numbers weren't giving them as accurate statistics as they wanted. What that number doesn't include are all the married couples who get a divorce, but they don't ever sign the paperwork. They just separate. Let's not bother going through this. Uh, it doesn't take into account the large amount of people who just decided to not get married. We're just not going to do that. We're just going to live together, and that happens with a bunch of relationships, and so there's no paperwork. And so most statisticians would say that probably half of the married or cohabitating relationships in Canada will end. Half of them. That's a 5 in 10 chance, right? Um, that's not super great. The average, Canada, uh, average length of a marriage in Canada is 13 and a half years. 13 and a half. How many of you have been married longer than 13 and a half years? Look at you guys. Bucking the odds. Well done. Well done. Uh, legally, a long marriage in Canada, which I don't know why there's a legal term, but there is. The legal long, uh, long marriage in Canada is seven years. If you have been married for seven years, you have been married a long time. Some of you agree with that. I don't... Uh, I think that's an oxymoron. I don't think there should be any time qualifiers in front of the word marriage because the word marriage itself would indicate that this is a lifelong relationship. So to say short marriage, long marriage, average length marriage, that's no marriage should be forever, right? It's weird to say, oh, yeah, long marriage is seven years. No, a long marriage is till death do you part. But that is not the way that it is going. That is not the way the world is operating right now. Um... I do want to be really sensitive as we talk about this because if those statistics are true, then there's a lot of people in this room who have lived this story. You are not on your first marriage. Some of you are on marriage two or three or whatever the case might be. Maybe you've never been married, but you've certainly been in a relationship that has gone sideways. Um, and there's all kinds of reasons for that. All kinds of reasons. And I don't want to get into any of them. It is not my intent today to scold or shame anyone for relationships that uh, you have had past, present, or future. It is our goal as a church today to help you strengthen and maintain the relationship that you are in right now. Um, you can't change the past, but you can learn from it, and you can be grateful as you look back on your past and see how God has led you through and the things that he has taught you, the way he's had your hand on your life. And so we're going to talk about the one you're in right now and hopefully learn some things to make sure that you do not end up as one of those statistics. Um, and I want to acknowledge, as also, as we talk about relationships, I want you to know there's no such thing as a perfect relationship, right? There's no such thing. No one has one. The people you admire the most, the marriages that you have seen the most, there is no such thing as a perfect relationship because it is made up of two people who are imperfect. And I'm not great at math, but if one imperfect person plus one imperfect person, that does not equal a perfect relationship. 
right? You have issues, they have issues, you add those together, you don't have no issues. You have more issues. Uh, and so don't believe the lie that says, well, if I just get into the right relationship with the right person, it's just going to be easy and fun and it's just going to be so, it's going to work itself out. It will not. And you will have to learn how to struggle through some tense times, some stressful times, some difficult times. And a lot of it will boil down to this whole idea of disagreement and conflict. And if we don't learn how to do this well, it will happen enough times where the temptation will just be to give up and walk out. And we want to fight for our marriages, right? We do. We want, that is the biblical mandate of marriage is forever. I want to highlight this verse to serve as our foundation today, Ephesians 5.21. It says, and further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay, so there's this picture of submission. And Paul goes on to talk about how wives should submit to their husbands. And all the men are like, yeah, I love those verses. And then it goes on to talk about how husbands should love their wives the same way Christ loved the church, meaning he laid down his life for them. So all the husbands are like, yeah, wives should submit. You're supposed to die for your spouse, okay? It's not easier, right? There's, there's no one of those that, that's easier or different or whatever. Uh, it is a mutual submission. That is what marriage is. It is a mutual submission. It is being for the other person. You want what is best for them. You want what is right for them and good for them. Uh, it is putting yourself second. This is what it looks like, right? If your marriage is a picture of you always pursuing what you want at the expense of your spouse so that they only ever get your second best or whatever your leftovers are, that is a broken relationship. Marriage is about mutual submission. That is what love is. Um, with conflict in marriage, it should not be about winning the fight. It should be about strengthening the relationship. Love is sacrifice. Love is putting yourself last. This is 1 Corinthians 13. Verse 4 says, Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. He just keeps going. It's really difficult. And then he says, it does not demand its own way. It is not irritable and keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. It endures through every fight, every disagreement, Every time that it gets heated and you don't see eye to eye and you're wondering how to figure it out, love will. Love will endure through every circumstance. And so this is, this is the picture of how we're supposed to operate in a marriage relationship. Uh, love not demanding its own way does not look like, fine, have it your way. Right? That is not submission. That is a trap. How many of you have learned that, that is a trap? I have learned through years of experience that fine, just do whatever you want. Does not mean that you should do whatever you want. You should do the opposite of whatever it is you want, and then you will live. Um, healthy marriages look like submission and sacrifice and compromise. No married couple said amen to that one, but I hope you're still with me is that is the biblical picture, and I want to get super practical and talk about this. How do we 
manage conflict well? How do we fight fairly? How do we work through some of this stuff when it gets tense and messy? The Bible gives us all kind of wonderful kind of guidelines and practical help. And so we're going to go through the ABCs of conflict. Uh, There are 17,000 that we could talk about. We have time to talk about three. And so that is what we'll do, literally A, B, and C. Okay, you ready for this? A is for anger. This is like the Dr. Seuss book. Remember the alphabet book? Big A, little A, what begins with A? Aggressive arguments and altercations. A, A, A. That is... uh, It is guaranteed that at some point in your relationship, you will be angry with the other person and they will be angry with you. That is okay. Anger is not a sin. But anger is dangerous. And it's often what you do in anger that will lead you to sin. Um... The temptation of anger is that you will act out of it when you're in the heat of the moment of anger, and it will cause you to do things and say things that when you calm down and look back at them, you will think, oh, I should not have done any of that. Right? You get so caught up in the moment that you don't even really understand what it is you're doing. It's like sleepwalking. How many of you sleepwalk or have kids that sleepwalk? Um, we had the true story a few days ago. One of our daughters got up at like midnight. And we're like, what are you doing? Do you need, like, what's going on? Do you need something? She's like, I need pants. We're like, oh, okay. You don't need pants. You can go back to bed. I need pants. Lost her mind, broke down in tears, had to be consoled. And then when she got up in the morning and we kind of walked this through her, she had very foggy recollection of just like, really? I did that? I don't know why I did that. Uh, Anger is the same way. You will do things when you're angry and say things when you're angry that a day later, you will look back at that and think, ooh, I really, ah, shouldn't have said that. I don't really remember doing that. And so it leads to the all-time kind of famous argument apology of, oh, I'm really sorry. I was just angry. Really sorry for what I did when I was mad. That's great. But whatever you did when you were angry is still what you did. And it is not justification. It is not letting you off the hook for the way that you acted when you were angry. And and how many regrettable actions have occurred because someone did something or said something, got caught up in the moment because they didn't take the time necessary to calm themselves down, to think it out, to have some space. Um, We we instantly react to things, and it rarely goes well. Ephesians 4.26 says, Don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry, For anger gives a foothold to the devil. So Paul tells us really two important things about anger in this passage. One is that you can be controlled by your anger. And two is that anger really needs to come with a time limit. See, the longer that you're in your anger, the the more you kind of stew in it and just kind of sit in it like a stew. That's... Yep. Um... That is what I meant to say. Uh, you, you, uh, you actually start to see people get eaten alive by their anger, don't you? You've seen that? Someone that's just angry, they walk in anger and live in anger, and it's just like, oh, all the time. And, and you can become controlled by it, Paul says. And so here is the antidote. Here is the solution to anger. Proverbs 15.1 says, a gentle answer deflects anger. Harsh words make tempers flare. Maybe you know it as a gentle answer turns away wrath. It turns it away. Right? Anger wants to invite you to a party, and gentleness says, we will decline that RSVP. We are not attending that party. We're not going to do that. It, it deflects anger. It turns it away. Gentleness diffuses the bomb. Gentleness 
calms the room. It tones things down. Where there is heated tempers and clenched fists and raised voices, gentleness is the thing that can just kind of go, okay, let's calm down. Let's take a minute. Um, you, you can have a gentle spirit that doesn't allow anger to kind of exacerbate all of your disagreements, your conflicts, and your conversations. You really can. You know how we know this? Because it is one of the fruits of the Spirit. Meaning that if you are here and you are a follower of Jesus, a follower, you have been given the Spirit of God to dwell in you, to give you the capacity to do things that you might not think that you're possible of doing, but you absolutely can through Him. Gentleness is one of them. Don't ever excuse your behavior by saying, well, I'm just, I'm just a naturally angry person. Neat, the Spirit of God is bigger than that. And this is a fruit of the Spirit. He develops it in you so that you can be gentle even when you least think you're capable of doing it. Gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. So you need to rely on the Spirit to have that, to maintain that. Secondly, with the time limit. Uh, anger should have a time limit, Paul says. And it is okay for you to be angry for a while. It's okay to kind of think on that and to, and to have that time, go to the gym and punch something or whatever you need to do. It's good. It's healthy for processing, to working through things. But Paul says, if you stay angry too long, you just gave the devil a foothold. You, you just invited the devil to come into your life and, and make things worse than they possibly should. And so Paul says, don't go to bed angry. There's your time limit. You can think on it through the day. You, you can, whatever you need to do to think about that, don't go to bed angry. And he's talking about relationally here. This is not just like anger in general with things in the world or things that you're working out. I'm still angry at things in the world like the Boston Bruins, and I am working through it with the Lord, okay? But you can't let relational anger linger. Don't go to bed angry with your spouse. Don't let your spouse go to bed angry with you. Paul says it is the longer you go in it, the more the devil will have a foothold. So anger is the problem. The antidote is gentleness. And I think we will see a better way to communicate when we're doing it in kind of calmed tones. B, big B, little B. No, we're not going to do that. Uh, B is for blame. Blame. Uh, we love to blame other people for stuff, don't we? We're masters at it. It just comes naturally to us. Um, this was the Garden of Eden. This was the first response to the first sin, gut instinct. This is what came out of both Adam and Eve's mouths. They ate the fruit they were not supposed to. They realized they're naked. They try to hide, and God shows up. Genesis 3.11. Who told you that you were naked? What? That's a question you'll probably never have to ask anyone. That's like a once-in-the-universe question. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? And the man replied, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit, and I ate it. And then the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied, and that's why I ate it. This woman you gave me, what a line. That's a double whammy, right? Because on the one hand, he is directly blaming Eve for like, like he's making it sound like, like she ripped open his throat and threw an apple down there like a pelican or something, just like, Argh! she made me eat it. But then, but then he says that you gave to me, this woman you gave to me, and he's kind of indirectly blaming God, right? Like this woman wouldn't have been able to do that had you not invited her to the party here in the garden. We were doing pretty good just by ourselves. And so it was a two-in-one blame. And, and 
Eve and God are literally the only other two people in the universe. Adam blames literally everyone in the universe except himself for this sin. Pretty impressive feat. Um, and then her response is, well, it was the snake, right? As obviously this animal, again, that you created, he was talking, didn't know they could do that, was pretty convincing, didn't know what to do, and so I ate it. This is our human tendency to, to not want to admit our own shortcomings, our own failures. We don't like to say, I dropped the ball, this is my fault, I'm sorry. We just kind of shy away from that. But if you're constantly blaming the other person for the things that are happening in your relationship, that actually won't ever strengthen your relationship. Let alone, how are you making them feel? You, you can't always blame the other person. Uh, what happens when you play the blame game, and, and perhaps this is happening unknowingly, what you're doing is you're always building a case against your spouse. You're, you're always building a case. Well, she didn't do the dishes tonight. It was her turn. She also didn't do it last week when it was her turn. She also, according to my journal, didn't do it four years ago on this night when it was her turn. That's three strikes. Right? And, and you're just kind of always building this case. You're, you're always seeing things as like a, well, this, this is a thing that you did that, that is obviously damaging to the relationship. Uh, but what did we just read in 1 Corinthians 13? Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love has a bad memory. Love does not build cases against your spouse. And what happens when you make case building a part of your relationship is that you'll always view things through that lens. And it is a negative lens. It is not a helpful lens. But you'll always see things through the, well, I'm building a case. I have to see what else she's doing. What else is she going to do when it's her turn to do it? Oh, where else is he going to go when I thought we had ground rules about where and when he should be going places? Um, and, and you're looking for it. You're on the hunt for it. You're just building this case all the time. Love is not keeping track. Love, love should be a terrible lawyer. Right? not building a case. Where was your wife on the evening of April 11th? I don't know. And I have nothing that I wrote down to look it up, right? You shouldn't be able to just think of that stuff. Um, and so don't, don't keep building a case against your spouse. The other thing that you shouldn't do is just refuse to acknowledge that you probably played a role in some of these things. It is a problem to never see yourself as the problem. There are two people in a relationship, and when the relationship is going a little bit sideways, uh, it's usually not just one person. And Jesus was pretty clear that, again, we have a tendency to do this. This is what he said in Matthew 7, 3. He said, why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? And how can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your own eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye Hypocrite, first get rid of the log in your own eye, and then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. In other words, you, you can't just always be picking out someone else's fault because chances are you've got your own. You've got your own stuff that you are bringing to the table that is not great all of the time. Um, and all of us, to some degree, are wearing blinders. We've got a bit of a refusal to see the stuff in our own life, but we're more apt to see it in someone else's. And we could talk for a long time about self-awareness and some of the importance of that. Um, we don't have time to do that. I don't, I don't need to hear it anyway. See what I did there? It's a self-awareness joke. It's, okay. Maybe the 11 a.m. will laugh at that one. The 9 a.m. won't. But anyway, uh, the antidote... Okay, to blame, to always seeing it in other people. The antidote to blame is humility. 
Humility is the spirit and the character that says, okay, I probably played a role in this. I probably had some kind of, you know, addition that I gave to this thing. It's acknowledging that you're not perfect either. It's acknowledging that you've got your own weaknesses, the things that you struggle with, the things that you wrestle with. And uh, is, is James chapter four, verse six, he says, he gives grace generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves before God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So you, you have to let your pride fall. You need to humble yourself before God, before your spouse. Uh, again, in a relationship of two people, it is rarely one person's fault. And so there needs to be some acknowledgement of your role in that. And so act humbly with your spouse. Don't be building a case against your spouse, knowing full well that they could probably be building one against you. So how about everyone just agrees that no one's going to court? You don't need to put your spouse on the stand. And, and you can just kind of humbly walk together and acknowledge that, hey, we both brought issues into this. We're both working through them. I bet it'd be great if we could do that together rather than to throw each other under the bus when things get a little bit difficult. More humility, more happiness. We don't need to blame. So A is for anger. The antidote is gentleness. B is for blame. The antidote is humility. And C is for criticism. How many of you enjoy being critiqued? No hands. I know, it's just everyone's favorite thing to, to stand in front of a bunch of people and have them all point out things that are wrong with you and bad with you. Isn't that your favorite? It is nobody's favorite. Um, it, it's great when you stand on stage for a living because people have a chance to really take a good look at you before they see you in the lobby when church is done and then they will give you helpful feedback. Like, my mom has the same shirt. These are all true, by the way. Um, are you really doing that with your beard? <laughs> I'm not, not doing something with my beard. Um, and then this is one of my favorites. You look a little pregnant. Which, it's the word little that gets you there because it's almost like a compliment. It's like, you don't look full pregnant, just a little. You know who that's a compliment for? A pregnant woman. You know who it's not a compliment for? A man. You only look a little pregnant, though. Being critiqued, not our favorite. No one loves it. No one looks for it. No one enjoys it. Some of you have panic attacks when you think of having, like, annual performance reviews, and you're like, I don't know. What are they going to say about me? Um, and, and, and here's the thing about criticism is that you probably get it from a fair number of sources in your life. The last person you need it from is your spouse. Your spouse should be your safest place. Your spouse should be your biggest fan, should be the source of the most kindness. So don't criticize your spouse. Be careful with your language, with your words, with your tone. Galatians 5.15 says, if you are always biting and devouring one another, watch out, beware of destroying one another. He's not mingling the words there. Your words have the power to destroy in fact, James says a, a little later on, uh, he says that the tongue actually holds the power of life and death. Life and death. So the things that you are saying to people, including your spouse, has some pretty serious power behind it. You should be using those words for the strengthening of your marriage, not the weakening of it. You should be using them to build up your marriage, not destroying it. And, and, and I should say this, even though I shouldn't have to, th this should go for whether your spouse is with you or not. 
Do not speak ill of your spouse when they are not around. Don't speak ill of your spouse when they're not even there to defend themselves. Um, you're not doing yourself or them any favors by doing that. And that's one of my pet peeves. And if you're ever around someone who is just, you know, trashing their spouse in front of a group of people, you should say something. It's like, why? Why would you do that? Right? Like, what, what's wrong with you? Don't be a poop mouth, right? Like, you, you pledged your life to this person. <laughs> That's going to take away from a little bit of... Anyway. Um, you, know, you pledged your life to this person that you are married to. Biblically, Jesus says that you were made one flesh. It's not two people anymore. You are one person. You are one body. So every time you criticize your spouse, you're actually bruising your own body. It's a self-inflicted pain. They are not different from you. You are one together. So you should speak well of each other. You should speak well and build one another up. And, and the issue behind criticism is that it's usually about some kind of behavioral change that we actually want to see. Have. It might actually be a beneficial thing that we're looking for. I'd really like to see that change in them. It's just that criticism usually ends up being the wrong approach. It, it ends up backfiring. Say there's a wife who wants her husband to spend more time with her. That is a good thing. But in order to, to get that, she criticizes him every time he leaves the house. She's just always nagging him, coming down on him. Can't believe you did this thing tonight. You're doing that thing tomorrow night. Where are you going to go next week? And, and the heart behind it is, I want more time with you. But the way it's coming across is having the complete opposite effect. Because what does that make the husband want to do? I'm going to go out for the next nine nights in a row. Because this is what my life at home feels like. It is in the book of Proverbs, better for a man to spend the night on the corner of his roof than with a nagging wife, right? This is the Bible... Um, it, it backfires, and that's usually the way criticism works, is that it backfires. And so I want you to picture this almost like sowing and reaping, right? You, the idea of if you want to harvest a particular thing, you have to plant those seeds to get that thing. We all good? Science. Or biology. I don't know what it is. It's the art of gardening. Um, and so relationally, if you want to harvest time together, if that's the result you want, then you need to sow seeds that will lead to that result, which means if criticism's not doing it, you should start sowing seeds of encouragement. You, you, you know, you should kind of sow better seeds if you want a better result. You need to produce the kind of fruit that you're looking for, and so you've got to plant the right kind of seeds, and that's just a good idea in general. Uh, you will get the results of whatever it is you're planting truth. And if you're not a fan of what it is you're harvesting, the problem is probably in whatever it is you're using for seeds. And that's the thing that probably has to change. That's probably the thing that needs to get better. My wife's not leaving because she's mad at me. She's singing today. She might be mad at me now. I don't know. Criticism won't produce good fruit. It won't, it will not, it will never give you the, the, the intended desire that you are after. Sometimes we just like to do it because it feels good. Made me feel good that I said something about it. But it's not going to give you the desire or the, the thing you desire. The antidote to criticism is encouragement. You should still be speaking to your spouse, just better things. First Thessalonians 5.11 says, so encourage each other. And build each other up just as you are already doing. Encouragement builds up. Criticism destroys. 
And so if you want to see your marriage and your relationships built up and strengthened, then encouragement will be the seeds that you should be spreading to give you the harvest it is that you are looking for. We need more encouragement just in general, not even in your marriages, but your relationships with the people around you. More encouragement would go a long way. Ephesians 4.29 says, Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. Let everything you say be good and helpful. Let everything you say be good and helpful. That's hard. But that is a fantastic rule for marriages and your relationships. Everything. Everything. So it doesn't say to lie. It doesn't say to sugarcoat things. Avoid difficult conversations. What it says is, is that when you speak it the right way, when, when there's truth and honesty in the appropriate way, it's still going to be good and helpful. You can be honest in a way that builds up. Right? Honesty, again, does not give you the justification for saying things the way we want. We, we've got this line and we love it. I'm just telling it like it is. Well, I'm just being honest. Right? If you ever find someone who is saying, I'm just being honest, they were just a jerk. That's usually what that means. And they're trying to backpedal and make up for something that they said. And, and so you don't, you don't always have to just tell it like it is. In fact, the Bible says you can speak the truth in love. And love is patient, and love is kind. Right? You can speak the truth in a way that is patient and loving and kind. You can speak the truth in love, and that is a way that you can be honest in your relationships, build one another up, and get the harvest you're looking for. We should compliment one another way more often than we do. Not just your spouse, but everyone. Hand out more compliments. Don't you love a compliment? Don't you love getting encouragement? Don't you love it when people notice you and, and see what you did and give you some praise? And it's, it's good. It's healthy for us. So hand them out. Hand them out today. Before you go tonight, a little, a little less you look a little pregnant and a little more you look good or I like your face or whatever it is. I'm, I'm bad at compliments, obviously. Should have had something written down for that one. But... More compliments, more encouragement, build up, let's not tear down. That's just good advice for the church in general, amen? We don't need to criticize so much. Um, we could go on and on, uh, but we are running out of time. So those are just some, those are just three, the ABCs of good conflict and communication. Anger, blame, and criticism. Replace it with gentleness, humility, and encouragement. And I am not saying that any of those things will keep you from fighting. It's just a better set of rules for the fights that you are going to have. It, it's a better way to speak to one another, to love one another, to honor one another. Be reminded that your marriage should be a picture for the world of how Christ loves the church. And so the way that you love your spouse should be a picture of the way Christ loves the church, the way that Christ loves you. And he has offered you so much grace and compassion and kindness. The Lord is slow to anger. He is quick to love. And this is the way that the church should be treating one another. This is the way we should be loving one another. Is the way you're communicating with your spouse right now a really good picture of that for the world to see? Maybe a different way to say it is the way that you're communicating with your spouse, the way that you would want Christ to respond to you. Because there have been many times when Jesus could have been 
pretty angry with me and I got gentleness. There's been a pile of times when I have been prideful and he has been kind to lead me to humility. And there's been all kinds of times where he could probably criticize me. He knows absolutely everything about me. Things that no one else knows about me. Every thought that pops into my head, he knows it. You know what he does? Shows me compassion and love and grace and peace. Man, I pray that that is the picture of our marriages. I pray that that is the picture of the way we operate in our relationships with one another, with our children, with our parents, with our families, with our friends. Do unto others, right? So God, help us. I want to pray for us. Jesus, you're so good. And we give you all the praise and glory today. And I just pray for uh, everyone here, God, who, who's in a marriage relationship right now specifically, I pray for them. And they probably know who they are in this room right now, who struggle with some of these things, that wrestle with some of these things. And I just pray that tonight that there would be good conversations, that there would be changes of heart and kindness and patience where there's been tenseness and, and anger. Uh, God, I just pray that you would give us the capacity through your spirit within us to see so much more of the fruit of the spirit love, joy, patience, and peace, and kindness, and gentleness, and self-control, God. Help us be who we need to be for one another. And God, for people in this room, just in their everyday relationships, the people that they interact with at work, and at school, and just kind of out and about, God, I pray that you would remind us of who we represent. Remind us to use words that, that build up, not tear down. Remind us that we are your ambassadors for the world and the world is desperately seeking a better way. And so God help us. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.